Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Leaders in Medicine, a special podcast series led by our section editor on pulmonary and critical care medicine, Dr. Jasbal Singh. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Welcome, everybody. Again, I'm Jaspal Singh. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician in Charlotte, North Carolina. And today on Consultant 360, I would like to welcome two new guests for our Women in Medicine series of leaders in pulmonary and critical care, Drs. Kathuria and Dr. Ohar. Dr. Kathuria, would you introduce yourself, please? Sure. I am an associate professor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. I'm a pulmonary critical care and sleep physician, and I direct the Tobacco Treatment Center. I do a lot of advocacy work. I'm the vice chair of the Tobacco Action Committee for the American Thoracic Society. That's fantastic. Dr. Ohar. I'm Jill Ohar. I'm a professor of medicine at Wake Forest University. I work in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care, and I have an interest in COPD, so that's my reason for being here. Yeah, and actually, I saw you a long time ago speak to a bunch of us young fellows about smoking cessation way back in the day. So I've seen you deliver a phenomenal talk on this topic, so I know this is something also very near and dear to you. A lot's happening in the smoking epidemiology, the prevalence, the patterns, including things like e-cigarettes and nicotine products that are coming out of the woodwork. Talk to us a little bit about sort of what key observations that you or both are seeing. And I'll start with you, Dr. Ohar. Well, I mean, certainly I'm reading a lot about that. I see that in our youth, in my own practice, which is mostly older patients who have COPD, most of them continue to cling to the old cigarettes, they're they're tried and true, they're standby. Now, a lot of that may be related to the fact that we live in North Carolina where cigarette taxes are incredibly inexpensive. And therefore, compared to places like in the Northeast where cigarettes can be as much as $10 a pack, here in North Carolina, cigarettes are a buck and change. So some of these new products, most of my patients can't afford and would, would rather just use a cigarette. Interesting. Dr. Katuria, talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing. Yeah, so here in Massachusetts, exactly that. The pack of cigarettes is about $10. We do see some of our patients use little cigars. So I work at a large safety net hospital. And so the cost can be prohibitive, but people find their way of smoking. So for instance, at our hospital, about 25% of individuals still smoke cigarettes compared to, you know, 14% nationally. We are seeing dual product use, which is concerning, mostly cigarettes along with e-cigarettes with the added toxicity of both products. That's concerning. And then, of course, in our youth, we are seeing e-cigarettes across Massachusetts. Yeah, you know, it's been interesting with the pandemic. I think a lot of the things that were non-COVID related kind of seem to get less attention. What are you seeing from the prevalence of e-cigarettes in youth and especially tobacco cessation in the setting of the recent pandemic of things that we should be aware of as clinicians on the front line? So I think one of, we try to incorporate teachable moments whenever we run our program. So talking about risk of cigarettes on immune suppression, risk of COVID in terms of that, and try to cater 
our tobacco cessation sort of counseling to that. So we are seeing that some people are more aware of smoking within the pandemic and and want to stop, but we're also seeing a lot of people at home more bored and increasing use. So we're kind of seeing both patterns. Interesting. And what's happening like around the globe? Is it cigarette smoking going up? Is it going down? Is it something that we need to worry about? Are nicotine products of different types coming about? Just talk to me a little bit about that if you don't mind. So I would say globally, we're, you know, in at least in the US, we're at 14%. We're patients that I see where there's a lot of tobacco-related disparities, we're, we're seeing very high smoking use. So the 25%, you know, we've looked at data over the years has pretty much stayed the same. So I'm not seeing a decrease within the pandemic. And I think, you know, the disparities of Black Americans and Hispanics, we have a large population that uses opiates. And so with opiate use disorder, we're seeing about 80% of people smoking. So lots of concerns in certain communities. And we're really trying to work to target that population to increase awareness, to decrease some of the disparities in care that we see. I'm thinking also that it's important at this point to talk about the fact that nicotine, regardless of the product that's being used, whether it's an e-cigarette or a hookah or a regular cigarette, that that nicotine is an important gateway drug, enhances uh, youth susceptibility to other products like the opiates. And I think that that kids have been lured into the use of e-cigarettes by the flavoring, et cetera, in much the way that children in the 50s were lured into regular cigarettes. And I, I think that it's important for clinicians, especially clinicians that take care of young populations, for pediatricians to be aware of this and to to ask at every visit, and also to kind of arm children with the knowledge that they're being lured into a habit that will clearly truncate their life and provide a terrible morbidity as they age. Now that's a great point. The idea of a gateway drug, the guy, the idea of Dr. Thuru was saying earlier that there's multiple substances at once and there's issues of disparities. What are you seeing, Dr. O'Hara, in your population in terms of e-cigarette usage potentially used aimed at quitting as a gate as a mechanism by which to quit or stop tobacco products altogether. Are you seeing that a lot? I thought there was a trend for a while, but just haven't noticed as much. I agree. I mean, I think you and I both being in North Carolina, we see pretty similar populations. And again, an e-cigarette is a, is a little more expensive way to get your nicotine data on e-cigarettes are that they at least get you off real cigarettes with some increased potential, you know, over like a nicotine patch, but you're still using nicotine. And there's a lot of potential harm there in that it's not only the nicotine, but if you alter the device, if you use the solutions that are often not mainstream e-cigarette solutions, you run the risk of vaping-associated lung disease. So I think that it's certainly not a panacea, and it probably provides really marginal improvement in terms of smoking cessation. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're all kind of seeing similar patterns, similar issues. But yet, it's interesting how the FDA suddenly in the last year finally got involved with some of this e-cigarette work and regulation. That's been paid a lot of attention. There's a lot of confusion out there. I was wondering if either of you could help us clarify what exactly the FDA is doing in this space, what needs to be done, where are they in this whole fight against nicotine products? 
Sure, I can start with that. I spend a a lot of time advocating, working with the FDA in regulating these products. So just for some background. So in 2009, there was a signing of the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act. We call it the Tobacco Control Act of 2009. And that law for the first time established the FDA authority to regulate the manufacture, the marketing and distribution of tobacco products. So amazingly, before that, tobacco products were largely exempt from regulation under the federal health and safety laws. And then in 2016, so that original act really was for cigarette and smokeless tobacco products. Those were the most commonly used products at that time. And in 2016, the FDA now has authority to regulate all tobacco products. And within that is e-cigarettes, is hookahs, is cigars. So that's where we started to see a lot more authority of the FDA to do this. The problem is, has the FDA exerted that authority to regulate these products? And that's where you're seeing a lot of suits against the FDA to use that authority to to regulate e-cigarettes. There's really two things that I think are most important. The first is tobacco manufacturers are required to obtain an order from FDA prior to marketing a new product. In order for a product to be on the market, FDA has to approve that product that it's appropriate for the protection of public health. So that's where a lot of the debate has come. And so now in 2020, in September, all e-cigarette manufacturers had to file what's called a PMTA, this pre-market tobacco review, so that the FDA could look at that and then make a decision about whether these products could stay on the market. The FDA is busy trying to do that. They were supposed to do this by 2021, September 2021. But you can imagine there's so many products and they've made decisions on a lot of them, but not on the big products like Juul, like Puff Bar. What we're hoping is that the FDA says that any flavored e-cigarette products doesn't protect the public health. So that's what we're hoping for. So that all flavored e-cigarettes under this rule, under this authority will be taken off the market. So that's the first one that they're spending a lot of time on and that we're really working on. The second is what we're beginning to see. And you had asked us all about other products. We're seeing synthetic nicotine being used. So Puff Bar uses synthetic nicotine instead of nicotine from tobacco. And so the FDA has authority to rule on any tobacco-related products, but not synthetic nicotine. And so they're using this loophole to get synthetic nicotine on the market. And that is really alarming. So we're hoping that the FDA uses authority to really ban and the synthetic nicotine to regulate these nicotine, synthetic nicotine products. Wow, that is fascinating. I had no idea about the synthetic nicotine being put on the side there as, as a bypass almost, what you're saying, Yeah. the FDA. So basically, when I used to ride on the street, I see all these hookah bars and all that stuff. Is all that regulated now by the FDA theoretically, or is that just not being acted on? Yes. So that's under the purview of the FDA. Hookah, cigars, not premium cigars. There's a lot of debate on that. But any product that's derived from tobacco can be regulated by the FDA. It's really fascinating. I think it's made an impact because I know that for me, we saw a lot of acute lung injury due to vaping for a brief period of time. And then it seemed to disappear as soon as it began. 
And one would believe that these offline, online, black market kind of manufacturers probably, when the FDA started to exercise oversight, probably went out of business. They just didn't have the legal counsel, the deep legal bench to fight that kind of oversight. It's very impressive the kind of clinical effect it's had, because I don't think I've seen vaping-related lung disease for a couple of years now, maybe even three. Yeah, I would add we haven't really seen it much in the last couple of years either, but I wonder if we haven't looked for it because of COVID. I think that's part of the problem, just but we're probably seeing about 10% that's related to nicotine. States aren't required to report e-valley cases anymore, but states that do, that are still collecting that data, you know, they're not using the THC, but it's thought that about probably about 10% are related to nicotine related products. That's a very nice summary of the issues to date so far. I will say, though, that my daughters tell me that vaping is present in their population a fair amount, you know, and so we're still not seeing, I was kind of hoping that with that, what Dr. Ohar is getting at was that a lot of public support for curtailing e-cigarettes is still seems to be going as this undercurrent at the schools in that population. And what's going on there? I would say absolutely. I mean, even now, you know, among middle and high school students, there's over 4 million people that report tobacco product use and about 3 million that use e-cigarettes. So it is a major problem. We're really hoping that the flavoring bans will help that situation. Like you had mentioned earlier, the flavors, Dr. Hart, that is what the appeal is to kids and youth. And so that's something that's really important. In Massachusetts, we have a complete flavoring ban on all tobacco products. So not only e-cigarettes, not but but cigarettes as well, including menthol products. And so we know if you ban some flavors, kids are going to gravitate to others. So you blend the candy and the fruity flavors, we saw an increase in menthol e-cigarette use. So I think that that's the last really, really important FDA regulation that we're hoping for. So when I sort of think about our tobacco control policy for this upcoming year, it's the flavoring regulations. And it's also the Biden administration is working toward doing a complete menthol ban on cigarettes nationwide. We know menthol products are used by black Americans, about 80%, 80 to 90% of Black Americans smoke menthol products due to unfair targeting to that community. We know that menthol cigarettes aren't safe. They increase addiction. And so there's been some really bold movement there to ban all menthol cigarettes. And we're hoping to see a decision in April of this year on menthol ban. Again, menthol is it's important to know that menthol act as almost a topical anesthetic. And so again, that's another issue of gateway where many, many smokers start their addiction through menthol cigarettes or menthol related vaping. So it's not the taste of the menthol so much as a flavoring. It's that it makes it easier to tolerate the irritant effects of vaping or smoking. And and so I think, again, that's something that's real important for people to understand, especially legislators who are making these important decisions. Yeah, that's great. That's a great summary of the issues. I think what I hear is a lot of sort of still work to be done. And hopefully good luck on that with the ATS and other societies, hopefully pitching in to really take on this next phase of the battle. I'm wondering how much the COVID epidemic and kids being out of school 
has affected trends and uses in kids for e-cigarettes or any kind of nicotine-related product? Part of the problem is the surveys that we rely on, the youth surveys. They haven't been done in the same way. So they're trying to do some online rather than part of their school. So really collecting that data has been challenging. I know in the town that I live in, we're trying to do a lot of work to gather that type of data. And, you know, just talking to my teenagers and to, you know, similar to what Jaspal said, it seems that it has not decreased. They're at home more. They're, for instance, when a teacher doesn't show up for school because of COVID policy and testing, they'll often leave class now. And what are they doing? Are they going and and vaping? Are they going and smoking? Like, we just don't know, (laughs) you know? So it's a big concern. It's an epidemic, you know, while we are beginning to see a decrease overall in e-cigarette use, we're seeing increase in menthol. We're seeing increase in disposable and puff bars. You know, I think it's something that we really need to monitor really closely. I'm going to switch gears a little bit about smoking cessation in general. For years, we've kind of gotten better, I think, over time in terms of counseling patients, managing things pharmacologically, and we're not going to have time to go through a whole pharmacotherapy review. But some recent data suggests that there are certain things that we can do pharmacotherapy-wise to help patients quit. And so a lot of us, for example, vernacycline, great drug for some of our patients, but it has some issues. But we also came up with shortages, all kinds of shortages for that drug, for other things. And What have you noticed in terms of quitting success rates, pharmacotherapy, especially related to the pandemic and its challenges of supplies and such? I'm thinking one of the big issues that patients who are in most need, your patients with bad COPD, or maybe even patients who've developed COVID-related pulmonary fibrosis, have a great fear of coming to doctor's appointments, uh, of even going to the pharmacy. And so actually reaching those patients is the first challenge. And we've been incredibly successful reaching the patients for the first step with going with virtual appointments. My personal no-show rate in clinic office was 40% with this kind of safety net patient population, and it's less than 5% using virtual visits. I use that opportunity every visit for people who continue to smoke, use it as an opportunity for smoking cessation counseling. It's interesting that the ATS clinical practice guidelines are advocating the use of varenicline as a first-line therapy. And interestingly, patients are still clinging to some of the early reports about side effects, psychiatric effects, suicides, et cetera. So it's really difficult, I find, to get patients to embrace that as a smoking cessation product. I agree. So I was part of the ATS, the guidelines on initiating pharmacotherapy. And I think there's two things that's really important. When we think of tobacco dependence, it's a chronic relapsing disorder. Just like when we treat diabetes and high blood pressure, we don't ask patients if they want to be treated for the diabetes. We discuss different options, whether it's diet control, exercise, medications. And so I think that's really important that one of the most important things that we learned from the guideline is that offering treatment to people that are not ready to quit. So changing our mindset of patients who have been smoking for 30 years, saying let's pick a quit date in one year is frightening to them. But Instead saying, are you willing to engage in counseling? Are you willing to take medications that may 
make you make a quit attempt at some point. And so that's where offering Varenicline and saying, you don't have to quit, pick a quit date in one week, but let's talk about how we can make some modifications and continue taking it. And at some point, we hope that you'll be able to be ready to make that quit date. So sort of changing the way we talk is really important and how we frame tobacco dependence. With the shortage, it's, it's options. People who are afraid, really addressing mistrust, misconceptions with medications, especially our patient population that doesn't engage with healthcare. That's a lot of our counseling to address some of this. And for people who have tried it, for people who don't want it, you know, dual therapy with NRT, nicotine replacement therapy. So the patch plus gum plus lozenger plus the nicotine inhaler is sort of a good strategy, especially in shortages. Um, thanks for, thank you for correcting my pronunciation on the medication. I think I just mm-hmm. had not used the generic version in so long. I, I blanked on <laughs> what that was. But anyways, Hasmina, that was a phenomenal review of, this, of the challenges. I think what you're saying is reframe I think, and treat this like not something you opt out of, but something you just sort of make a standard approach, which I think what you're hitting at is every encounter, almost the way we attack obesity, the way we attack diabetes. I think that's a good way of addressing it. For some reason, it had this special privilege, you might say, to not be seen as a chronic condition. And I think treating it such is probably the way to think about it. Am I right? Yes, I 100% agree. If you think about it, only 15 to 30% of individuals are ready to set a quit date. And we know that is dynamic, just like you were saying, Joe, when somebody has a COPD exacerbation, that's a moment where they might be ready to make a behavior change. And so understanding that it's dynamic, that people who say that they're not ready to quit can successfully quit or stop smoking or change their behavior or engage in treatment. Those are all really meaningful outcomes, especially in our patient population that's been smoking for a very long time. So at every encounter, instead of just offering treatment for people who are ready, sort of doing more of an opt-out approach. Let's let's talk about this and let's offer treatment and have patients choose that maybe now is not the right time. I'm going to add sort of change it to a little bit different direction here. To talk about virtual visits, Jill, the idea of, yeah, adherence is better to appointments, to no-show rates, but we've also learned from some studies that actually virtual visits have the downstream aspects of back to the at-risk populations, not having as good access to virtual care as others. The older population not connecting with their providers as well on virtual platforms. And so when you think about personal issues of getting into behavioral psychology of quitting tobacco cessation, how effective do you really think virtual visits are for tobacco cessation and for nicotine? I think they're great. I think that you have to anticipate challenges. And I think that age is certainly an issue. I often counsel patients in advance of their visit to check with an IT expert, which is also known as their grandchild, um, and have them have either a grandchild or a child or a neighbor available for help with one of those first or second visits so that you don't spend most of the visit trying to help them through the technology. There are platforms that are incredibly simple that you can teach people to use on the fly. The the Doximetry platform I use a lot, and almost everybody can use it. It's the rare person who can't. The other thing is, is that everybody has a smartphone now. I would say less than 5% of the patients that we encounter are using the old flip phones or something like that. So I think it's possible 
but there are challenges. You're absolutely right. And by inviting people to learn a little bit about the platform, which is incredibly simple, it gives them an opportunity to engage in something that their children and grandchildren really know a lot about, and they can learn from them, and it, it helps their relationships as well. So, Hasmina, what are your thoughts? I found, so we went to a virtual platform for our outpatient tobacco treatment as well as our inpatient program. So during COVID, when people were in the room, we would call in and engage in smoking cessation, you know, our counselors. We actually had a very high show rate for our outpatient when we converted to to telemedicine during the pandemic. You can reach them in the car while they're doing other things. The show rate to our outpatient tobacco treatment program is low. You know, there many physicians are yesing their their doctors. They don't want to disappoint them. They don't want to disappoint the provider. Yes, I'll, okay, I'll I'll go, and then they don't come. When we converted to telemedicine, we were able to reach them. So. There's texting platforms There's that have been shown in meta-analyses to be very effective, telehealth. So I agree. I think using creativity and reaching the patient where they need. There's some that like group visits. There's some that prefer, you know, the counseling over the phone. So I think it's a great option for patients. Great. So it's hopefully a great option that we can kind of move forward and adapt from the pandemic a little bit and sort of move forward and continue to do virtual visits for tobacco cessation. Switching gears a little bit, the Philip Morris controversy a little bit. I know, Asmina, you're involved in some of that aspect. It's a very interesting, intriguing side story. Tell me a little bit about that one. Well, so Vectura is one of the world's leading companies in the science of delivering inhaled medication. So they produce a lot of the inhalers that we all use to treat our COPD patients. And Vectura was recently bought by Philip Morris International PMI, and that's the world's largest tobacco company. So you can imagine the sort of uproar from many of us in the community that here you have PMI, who is selling cigarettes to get people addicted. And now they own the company that's making products to treat this. And so very concerning conflict of interest. And then I think one of the other concerns is that, you know, while not implying intent, we worry that same expertise that Vectura has in developing delivery to the lungs. Can they use that same technology to deliver nicotine tobacco-related products to the lung? And that's that's very concerning, especially given the youth epidemic of nicotine addiction. Yeah, I'm envisioning some type of future where they're starting to buy lung cancer drugs or <laughs> other things like that that are sort of interesting to think about the potential ethical issues here. Well, I just want to thank you both for taking the time to talk to us about these important aspects. And, uh, and for our listeners, we have a bunch of references also on the website. But I'm going to ask our guests here today to talk a little bit about, you know, in this series, it's about women in medicine. And one of the reasons for this series is actually because we've known this gender gap. We're learning more about the gender gap now. I think it's getting a lot more tension about the struggles that women, especially in pulmonary and critical care, have, whether it be at work, at home. Talk to us a little bit about any, any reflections on that aspect a little bit. Um, Jill, start with you. I'm very old, so I've been on this road for a long time. When I started out, there was no such thing as a maternity leave, even. You know, the idea that you would actually deign to have children. As a matter of fact, I was denied some residencies because I was pregnant at the time of interviews. It was unusual for women to even get into medical school. So I understand. I think in many ways, 
you know, while things are incredibly better now than they used to be, I think just like the tobacco industry, they've kind of gone undercover. They've changed the way that they're addicting our children. In many ways, the gender gap has changed and it's more covert in that women currently experience less pay. They experience less opportunities for, for leadership roles. And that continues. I think women continue to be viewed as not as strong, a, a clinician, as strong academician, et cetera. And, and these are long held views that I think are going to take a very, very long time to change. Your thoughts, Ms. Pena? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's, for me, it's really important to surround myself with strong women mentors. When I started in the lab, Mary Williams was my mentor and sort of learning work-life balance so that I don't have a five-year plan, but I have a 20-year plan. I think that's really important and that's really challenging. Just like we are learning more about diversity and equity, I think continuing to keep these issues at the forefront, to have discussions, to talk about it are all really important. And I hope we continue to make progress in that area. Well, thanks. Yeah, I hope, I hope so too. With that, thanks to our guests for taking the time out of their day, out of the busy schedules to spend time with us. And on behalf of Consultant360, we thank you and hope you have a great day.